Hey, good morning. Uh, please stand for the reading of the scripture. Uh, it should be on your sermon guide that you got on the way in. Today we're reading from Joshua 3, 14 through Joshua 4, 8. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan, and the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It was the harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the Ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away at a town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed onto the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry. Then all the people crossed near the town of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take twelve stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up, the, up at a place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, go into the middle of the Jordan, in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder. Twelve stones in all, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you, then you can tell them, they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the ark of the Lord's covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the, men told, so the men did as Joshua had commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, one from each tribe, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the place where they camped for the night and constructed the memorial there. Right. You may be seated. Right. Thanks, Alex. How are we doing, Hope City? Good? Good to see you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving week and were able to do whatever it is that makes Thanksgiving good for you. Uh, maybe it's good food or family or football. I don't know. Uh, but glad that you're here today. I read this this week. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, hopefully it doesn't uh, hit too close to home for you. But I read this week. Uh, it said, if your family asks you to bring rolls to Thanksgiving, it's because you can't cook. <laughs> if they tell you exactly what brand to buy, it's because you can't be trusted. And you're one screw up away from bringing the ice next year. So... <laughs> Hopefully, you weren't asked to bring the ice. Um, anyway, hope you had a great week. We've been uh, taking the fall to read through the Old, Old Testament story uh, of Exodus. And today, uh, we reach the end of, of the story, at least the end of the story for our purposes. Um, technically, the story keeps going throughout the Old Testament, and technically, we're still living the story. But we got to end the story somewhere for this series, so... For our purposes, we are ending it today. And while we could have gone a lot of different directions, um, you know, with Moses and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and all those things, I felt the best way to end would be to jump ahead 40 years to the people, God's people, going into the promised land. And if you've been here for any part of this series or you know anything about the story of Exodus, then you know that God made a promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis that his family, Abraham's family, would become a great nation and that God would be their God, this nation, he would be their God, and that they would be his people. 
And so after 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God sent Moses and the 10 plagues to bring his people out. But as they left Egypt, the the Egyptian army chased them. And so God parted the Red Sea. He brought the people through on dry ground. And after they were through and the Egyptian army was still in the sea, the water collapsed back down and the Egyptian army was destroyed. And now finally, God's people, Abraham's family, they're free. They are objectively and legally free and they are now out in the wilderness following God, but they had to learn how to live like free people. They needed God to teach them how to overcome generational tendencies and live a a new way of life. This is why God gave them the laws and the commands through Moses. And we've said each week that this isn't just their story, but it's also our story. That if you're here and you're a Christian, then you were once held captive as a slave to sin. But God sent you a deliverer, not Moses, but Jesus. And he brought you out and you crossed over into a new life. But God gives you a new way of life that that combats against your old sinful generational tendencies. We are them. They are us. And we're learning in this story how God has brought us out, but also how we can live in freedom too. And so over the next 40 years through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, God's people struggle to live that free life, just like you and me. They kept turning from God and, 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 and worshiping other gods and, and acting like other nations and other people. But God was faithful. He was committed to them, even though they weren't committed to him. And so now, 40 years later, we come to the story that Alex read for us today. Moses has died, and all of the people who have marched marched through the Red Sea have died, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. That's another sermon for another time. And so now you have a new generation, you have a new leader in Joshua, and they are on the doorstep of this land that God had, had promised to them, we call it the promised land. This was land that had been handpicked by God for his people, the best place for them to live, to prosper, to be blessed. And so Joshua rallies the people together and the priests step into the water carrying a golden box filled with God's presence, which is the Ark of the Covenant, which is another sermon for another time. And when their feet hit the water, God does the miraculous again, and and the sea begins to split, the, the river begins to split, the people walk across on dry ground, just like their parents did 40 years earlier at the Red Sea. And so now there is no doubt that God is committed to them, that this wasn't just a one generation promise for their parents, but now God is committed to them just as much as he was committed to their parents, that he's still with them and he's still guiding them and he's still helping them and he wants to bless them and he wants to give them the fullest life. But God tells Joshua to do something really interesting after they cross over. We read it, Alex read it to us. God tells Joshua to choose 12 men, one from each tribe, because Abraham's grandson, Jacob's name became Israel. So now it's the, and he had 12 sons. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. 
So take one person from each of those tribes and send them back into the Jordan River where the water is still split and it's still dry ground in flood season and have them pick up a stone, but not just a little pebble, pick up a stone that's so big they got to throw it on their shoulder and have them bring it back over and set them up and stack them up as a, as a monument to remember and to memorialize what God had done. So God brings them through and he says to them, don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. And on this seventh week of this series, as we're wrapping up this story of Exodus, that's their story and, there's, and it's our story, we come to the end and the challenge for us is the same challenge that they had. It's the challenge to not forget. You're a Christian. You've had an exodus. God has brought you out. You were once a slave to sin, but God has brought you out. He has crossed you over. He has given you a new way of life. And there is a challenge now that you have to not forget. Don't forget. God knew their tendency, and he knows our tendency to forget about what he's done. And we don't have time to read it. As you read through the book of Joshua and Judges and really the rest of the Old Testament, you read about God's people trying to live life to the fullest, but they keep failing. They keep failing over and over and over again. They keep turning their back on God and copying the customs and the gods of of their neighbors. They keep forgetting God. They keep forgetting the promise they made to God to obey him. I could take you this morning if we had time to all of these different parts in the story where God would speak through Moses and and God would say, you know, if you'll follow me and if you'll obey me, then then you'll never have to fight any wars and you'll never have to worry about any enemies and, you know, your crops will always grow. And I mean, it will be as close to the Garden of Eden as you could get. And the people in unison through Moses back to God say, we will not forget We will not worship other gods. We will do everything you've commanded us to do. And they meant it with all of their hearts, sincerely, just like you and I do. But they didn't. Their struggle is our struggle, and it is the struggle for every Christian that God rescues us, he brings us out, and then after he blesses us, we forget about him. I mean, take a few moments and just think about all the promises you've made to God that you forgot to keep. Just think about it. Whatever jam you got yourself in or predicament you got yourself in, whatever brought you back through the doors of the church, we say to God, God, if you will help me, I will never miss church again. God, if you'll help me, I will never sleep with them again. God, if you'll help me, I'll never go back to those friends again. I'll never drink again, God. Or what about this? I'll never drink and drive again, God, if you'll just get me out of this jam. I'll never cheat again. I'll never go back to the casino again. If you'll just help me cover this debt, we make promises. We need God's help. And when we are in the heat of our struggle and feel like we will not get out, we mean it with all of our heart. So sincerely, we mean it. We won't go back. We won't do it anymore. We'll worship God. We'll do it God's way. We'll lead God's way of life, but our promises seem a little bit unreasonable and extreme once we get out of the jam that we are in or the trouble that we're in. This is the story of the Old Testament over and over and over again. It's human nature. 
That when things are bad, we cry out to God, but when things return to normalcy, we forget him. We begin to put our trust in other things again. So if this was their struggle, and it's our struggle, and if God has brought us out like he's brought them out, and he doesn't want them to forget, and he doesn't want us to forget, how can we not forget? How do we keep our faith fresh? How does our exodus stay fresh in our hearts and in our minds? How do we keep it in front of us? Well, our scriptures that we read today tell us two things that God or gives us two ways or tells us two things about the kind of faith that God wants us to have. If we don't want to forget our exodus, if we want our faith to be fresh and to stay in front of us and have an urgency to to it and and a meaning to it, then two things. Our faith has to be personal and it has to be tangible. Personal and tangible. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about tangible first. Tangible. By tangible, I mean that our faith, our relationship with Jesus has to be more than just superstition or sentimentality. Can't just be feelings or dreams or wishes. And in this story, God tells Joshua to create something that will be a reminder of God's faithfulness, something tangible. He wants him to take the stones from the Jordan River they just crossed during flood season so they can have something tangible that they can point to and remember what God had done for them. Some, some place on a map, some, some physical thing that they could touch, a place they could visit for a story that they could tell. And I think we all have to be careful that our faith doesn't just become sentimentality. It's easy to do. Talk about something that God did 25 years ago or 20 years ago or that youth group we used to be in or that trip or that conference. It gives us good feelings to think about it, but our faith is not something that is real in our lives. And if we're not careful, faith can just become like good vibes, you know, or it can just become one of the many different ways for people to be more kind or more loving, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a faith built on objective truths. That Christianity is not a religion because a few people had a dream one night. It's not a religion because of some folklore passed down through history. That Christianity is Christianity because God put skin on. That he came to this world and it was tangible. You could touch him. You could hear him. You could see him. So what makes Christianity different. One of the things that makes Christianity different. And Jesus didn't just show up and be like, hey, good vibes. Peace. Everybody get along. No, he showed up and he gave us tangible, objective measures. He said, hey, listen. If your enemy asks you to carry something, it makes you carry something for a mile, carry it too. If your enemy strikes you, turn the other cheek and let him hit you. That's real. He would touch lepers. And after he was resurrected and there were people who didn't know if they could believe, he said, you can touch the scars in my hands and my body. You can see, you can feel it. This is something that is real. This is not mushy sentimentality. For so many of us modern Christians, 
Our faith is so abstract. It's about a feeling or it's about being a good person or it's about a dream we had or a picture of Jesus in the toaster that pops out or something that just feels fuzzy and cool and good and, and, and whatever. But what separates Christianity from other religions is that it's not just mushy or superstitious or feel good. It's real and it's objective and you can touch it and you can feel it and you can see it. To which... We say, well, I don't, I don't have any of those stones from the river. I mean, I can't touch those. And listen, I, I believe Jesus was real, but I've got his spirit now, but that doesn't necessarily seem as objective. So, so what do I have to touch and feel? That would be a worthwhile question. Like, Jason, I'm with you, but like, what do I have? Well, the good news is you have your own memorials. You have your own tangible things that you can point to, touch, and feel to keep your faith fresh. And it's not just because we came up with them at Hope City Church. It's because the church, Jesus Christ Church, for thousands of years have had these ways, these tangible ways that our faith stays fresh. It stays in front of us. Let me give them to you. Baptism, communion, tithing, and worship. These are just four of the ways, our own little stones from the Jordan that we can point to. Ways that our, our faith is not just about the latest, greatest thing we heard, but it's something that we can touch and feel and identify. And in each of these ways, God reminds us of his love and his faithfulness and his goodness. And let me just talk about each one of these for just a moment. In baptism, we go under the water. The water, you can feel it. It's usually ice cold here at Hope City Church, and you feel it. But while you're doing it physically, something is happening spiritually. You're publicly broadcasting that you are following Jesus, and as you go under, your old life goes down with you, and as you come up, your old life stays down, and your new life begins. It's what separates us from everyone else. We are the baptized and baptism is not just some ethereal, you know, thing. It, there's a place on a map that it happened, an address at a time with some people in a container with water. And so maybe there comes a time where you don't feel as saved as you want to feel or you don't feel as close to God as you want to feel. You have something you can look to and you say, I don't feel as close to God as I want to feel, but I know that I'm baptized. Because I was there. I can take you to the place. I, I can show you the person who put their hands over top of my hands and held my nose and put me under and brought me back up. It's real. You can touch it. You can feel it. You can experience it. And I know for many of you, maybe you were baptized as a child, you know, or maybe, you know, you were raised in a different religion or belief system and I don't, we don't have the energy to try to argue about what's the right way to baptize. We just want to do it the way they did in the book of Acts. But we're not going to argue with anybody about the way they do it or, or any of that. But I've been so moved and so challenged this week as I've thought about this tangible expression, something physical that is also something spiritual. And I've been so challenged that potentially, because I know a lot of your stories and some of you even said it to me, that for many of you, your baptism was either something you were forced to do or it's something that happened to you when you were younger or something that you did, but now looking back, you wish that you had had a different baptism experience and that you, know, you have made a choice as an adult, a, 
maybe it's not a conversion, but it's a reconversion, you know, it's a recommitment. It's, you would say that, that my faith is real to me now in a way it's never been real to me before. Maybe I've understood the gospel in a way that I haven't before. And you would like another experience to point to, to see, to touch, to taste, to feel, to keep your faith fresh and in front of you. I called our team last night and I said, hey, listen, I'm just going to throw a curveball at you here. I want us next Sunday to have a baptism service. And I am inviting anyone and everyone who would like to be baptized because you would like to express publicly and physically that you have put a faith in Jesus Christ, that you are following Jesus. I'm inviting you to be a part of that baptism service. I don't care if you were baptized as a baby. I don't care if you were baptized as a child. I don't care if it's going to offend your grandmother. I don't care if you're a growth group leader or if you're an elder or you're a staff member or you're the pastor's wife. There is no judgment. There is no shame. So many of you said to me, like, man, I kind of wish I could get baptized. But I mean, like, at this point, like, you know, I've kind of been a Christian for a while. Or I've been around a lot of people like, oh, what's he getting baptized for? Listen, let them worry about their own little judgmental thing, okay? And so my hope and my prayer is that 20, 30, 40 of you would say, you know what? I want something tangible. And yeah, it's, it's happened before, and I don't even know how to explain it, but I just know now for where I'm at in my life, I'm ready to be able to, to have my own experience, a choice that I'm making because of what my faith is and, and how my relationship with Jesus is. And listen, you don't have to explain it to us. We're going on the honor system. All you have to do at the end of service is go back to the back table where Amanda is, give her your name and your phone number. We're just going to text you this week to make sure you, we know what service you're coming to and you know what to wear and what not to wear. And, and then we're going to baptize you. You don't have to give a testimony. You don't have to write out your story. You don't have to convince us that you're a Christian. We're going to take your word for it. But this is an opportunity for you to touch the water, to get in the tank, to have the pastor or the leader baptize you so that you can say, I was there, 75, 15, I don't know how much longer we're going to be in this building, but forever you will be able to say 75, 15, 3rd Street Road. It's an oriental grocery store now, but it used to be a church. <laughs> and right up there in the front, Pastor Joe, Pastor Katie, Pastor Jason, Pastor Jesse, they, they, they baptized me. I know what that water was. Ice cold. And I went under that water and I came up. And you can't take that from me. And I don't feel very safe this week. And I haven't had a great month or a great year. And man, the devil's really fighting me. But I was there and I touched that water and I felt it. And I was in that tank. And I know Good. it's tangible. So man, I would just want to encourage you. So all you got to do is go to the table. If you have any questions, Pastor Joe will be up here. He'd love to answer them for you. But we're going to make it as simple for you as we can. Next Sunday, man, I'm hoping so many of you take that step, okay? I don't have time to talk about all of them at that length, but, but baptism for the church is, is something that we do physically, but as we're doing it physically, something's happening spiritually. <clears throat> Communion's the same way. We take communion every week here at the church. We give you the opportunity to take communion. And in communion, you're touching the bread, you're touching it. You're tasting the juice, and you are reminded of the body and the blood of Christ. And while you're doing it physically, something is happening spiritually. And Jesus told the disciples, even Jesus did this, and he, he told the disciples to do this often to remember him. So that's what we do. Now, of course, so many of you would say, well, yeah, I took, you know, the sacraments or the Eucharist, or I've done communion, and I mean, it doesn't keep my faith fresh. You can totally take communion and not keep your faith fresh. But if you want to keep your faith fresh, man, communion is the way to do it. 
Because you're reminded every week, every day, you, you, the bread, I needed, I needed a body to be broken for my sin. I need blood to flow for my sins. And Jesus did that. And, and when you take in what that is and you touch it and you feel it and you taste it, it's physical, but it's spiritual. And you remember, you're reminded of God's love and God's faithfulness. And it helps you not forget. When we tithe, tithing is giving the first 10% of your income back to God through the church. And physically, tangibly, you're writing a check or you're texting a number or you put cash in an envelope, but while you're doing it physically, something is happening spiritually. Spiritually, you are letting God into the areas of your life you most want to grab hold of. You're trusting him. You're recognizing that he is your provider and he's faithful and he's been good to you and he's blessed you. And of course, you can give and not think about God's love and faithfulness. You can tithe and your faith not be fresh. You can be like, here, take the money. I don't want to talk about it. I know y'all want my money. Just take my money. We'll take it. You can do it. But you have the opportunity if you want to keep your faith fresh, you want to keep it in front of your eyes. You have the opportunity to take that moment as an act of worship and say, God, everything I have belongs to you. 100% belongs to you. But I'm reminded of your love and your faithfulness and your way and your way of life. And it's physical, but it's spiritual. And when I say worship, I don't just mean singing songs, even though we do sing songs when we worship. I mean, I mean it historically as the act of being together as Christians. We come to worship the noun, not the verb. And it's not just singing, it's serving and hugging and talking and, and learning. And we come together physically, but as we are together physically, something is happening spiritually to our souls. You can, you can, you can touch someone. You can, you can, you can feel it. You can pro sometimes smell it. You know, sometimes you can, you, 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 it's, it's real. You were there. This isn't a dream. This is a real thing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're reminded when you show up, you're part of Christ's church. This is the church. This is the people that he died for. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that the church, you know, is there to meet my needs. And what do you have for me? And what do you have for my family? And what can you do for us? Or we'll try to fit it in when we have time. But, you know, we don't have a lot of time off. This is our time off. But the church is there to give us daily and weekly reminders of God's love and faithfulness. And maybe you're the only Christian at your job and you think like nobody loves God, but you show up here and you're reminded there are a couple hundred people who love Jesus and you're not alone. Or maybe you're discouraged or maybe you're sick and there's an opportunity for the leaders to pray for you and you're reminded I'm not alone. I have the church. I don't just have God and his spirit. I have the church. And I can touch that and I can feel that and I can see that and smell that. And so we eat the bread and we drink the juice together and we worship together and we give together sacrificially. And a Christian who is not doing these things will eventually just be sentimental or superstitious. It will, it will eventually just become like stories about what happened a long time ago or it becomes this weird like angel, demon, invisible game. 
but there's nothing real to it. There's nothing, there's nothing tangible to it. In order for it to be real and to be fresh and to stay in front of your eyes, you've got to practice it. You've got to practice it and do things that are real. And so we remember by practicing our faith, we can touch it, we can point to it. The water, the bread, the juice, the money, the people. The water, the juice, the bread, the money, the people keeps our faith fresh in front of our eyes. That's the tangible aspect that God tells Joshua, put the stones and stack them up so that you can come here anytime and you can tell the story about what's been done and what I've done. But we also, we all know that actions are not enough. All of us could talk about a time in our life where we've gone through the motions and we were doing the actions, but our faith wasn't necessarily real to us. And that's because it's not just enough for our faith to be tangible. If we don't want to forget, our faith has to also be personal. It has to be personal. And God makes it personal, very personal, when he tells Joshua that your children will ask about this. Your children will ask about this. I was, I was thinking about this all this week, about the questions that my children ask because they notice things that are important to me. Dad, how did, how did you become a Tennessee fan? I got, I've gotten that one from all the kids. I've actually taken three of my kids to Neyland Stadium. We've seen it. And you know what I do when they ask how we became a Tennessee fan? I don't say, well, it's just what we are. Get over it. I say, well, you know, when I was 12 years old, I lived in Ottawa, Tennessee. It was during the Peyton Manning era. And we never were able to beat Florida. We never were able to win the national championship. But we were good because Peyton really, he could, he could sling it. And they sucked me in. And then the next year after Peyton left, T. Martin was the quarterback in 1998-99, and we won the national championship. We shouldn't, but Arkansas fumbled the snap, like happened this weekend. They fumbled the snap, and we got it, and we won the national championship with T. Martin, not with Peyton Manning. And then we stunk for 20 years. But they had already sucked me in. And so every year I buy a new sweatshirt or a T-shirt, and I believe it's our year. But guess what? We're finally back, Solomon. We're finally, there's a story that I tell. You know why? Because my fandom is personal to me. And I point to it. And I tell them a story about how I became a Tennessee fan. Or when my kids say, like, Dad, why do you like golf so much? I don't say, mind your own business. I say, well, you know, my grandfather was a scratch golfer. And he taught my dad, you know Papa Bill, he taught Papa how to play golf. And actually, Papa Bill was like really good. Before he ever graduated high school, he was like a scratch golfer. He was great. And then Papa Bill taught me and Uncle Jeremy how to play golf. And now I'm teaching you how to play golf. Because it's kind of what we do. It's kind of what our family does. And they see me watching it or they see me playing it. They start asking questions about it. This is exactly what... God is describing to Joshua when he says, if this faith is personal to you, then your, your children will ask. Your children will ask. And when they do, how do you talk about it? That's the question. How do we explain this faith that we are practicing to our children? 
I read recently that 70% of wealthy families will lose their wealth by the second generation, and 90% of wealthy families lose it by the third generation. And there's lots of different reasons for this, but one of the major factors that's agreed upon is that the second and third generations of wealthy families don't know what it's like to go without. They, they, they don't have to work for it. They inherit it, and so they don't know the right things to do or appreciate what they have. They take it for granted. And I think there's something to be said in the same way about the Christian faith. While so many of the tenets of our faith can be passed down, and I hope that you teach your kids about faithful church attendance and generosity and helping people and loving people, I hope you pass those things down. Our children have to experience Jesus for themselves. They have to have their own exodus. They cannot survive on our faith. My grandparents used to say, you know, God don't have no grandchildren. Maybe you probably heard that before. Only children. You don't get in because of your parents' faith. And every person who is blessed with a family or with children, all of us would say we want our children to know God. We want our children to meet Christ. And they have to experience it for themselves. And so they come to us at certain ages or certain times in our life and they say, what, what, I want to be baptized. We're having that conversation in our house right now. Why do we go to church? Why do we give? What do you say? What do you say? I want to read you just one more passage of scripture. You got to go back a little bit. It's in Deuteronomy. Moses is back alive in this story and God speaking through Moses says to tell the people, Deuteronomy 6, 20 and 20 through 25, multiple times throughout all of these stories, by the way, God says to Moses, tell your son, tell your daughter, when your children ask, when your children ask. When it is important to God that it passes on generationally. God through Moses says, in the future, your children will ask you, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God has commanded us to obey? Then you must tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us this land he had, shown, he had sworn to give our ancestors. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands our Lord has given us. Which this is pre-Jesus, so we could say now as New Testament believers, we're counted as righteous when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Our children come and they ask us. And the easiest thing in the world for us to do, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, the easiest thing in the world for us to do is to explain morality or to just say it's what we do. And I'm not talking about it every age. They're, they're small. You say, we're going to church, get in the car. I don't care, get in the car, you know. But as they get older, do you have a personal faith you can tell them about? Because what we just read in Deuteronomy is not, well, we don't want God to be mad at us. Or we don't lie because God wouldn't be happy with that. Or obey your parents because God said so. What we read there in Deuteronomy and what we read throughout these stories is a personal faith. We, I, 
was a slave. We, you know Papa, you know great-grandpapa, we were slaves in Pharaoh's Egypt. But God brought us out with a mighty hand. He brought us into the land he promised us, and he blesses us, and he preserves us. And we want to be righteous for him. It's personal. Do you have a story like that? Do you have a personal experience like that? Are you able in some way to say to your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter, you know, there was a time when I was not who I am now. I was lost, but God reached out to me and moved my heart. And I realized I was a sinner who needed to be saved and I put my faith in Jesus to save me. And now I do my best to live for God because he loves me and blesses me even though I don't deserve it. That answer is much different than trying to make your children moral people. And I get it. I'm a parent. We all want our kids to be good kids, but you're not a Christian because of your good behavior or because of your grades or because how nice you are to people. And I think it's great that you homeschool your kids or that you eat dinner as a family or that they say yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, or that they don't use electronics or have social media on their phone. Listen, those are great things, but that's not what it means to be a Christian. Keep doing those things. But do they know what it means to be a Christian? Do they know how you became a Christian? Do they know why you came to the conclusion through the help of the Holy Spirit that you needed to become a Christian? There are opportunities in all of our failings or their failings to bring it back to Jesus. Hey, I just caught you in a lie. Let me tell you why you lied. Because you're a human being. There's sin in your heart. That's why you need Jesus. Hey, I know dad just lost his temper. Let me tell you why I lost my temper. Because there's sin in me. That's why I need Jesus. We can keep bringing it back to Jesus, not about good behavior, nothing wrong with good behavior, but we bring it back to needing a savior. And if we're not careful, we can try to raise kids that don't need God. And I'm not saying that we send them out like in downtown in the middle of the night so they'll have a testimony. I'm just saying that, that if we're not careful, we can try to teach them all about how God wants us to live before they ever know why they need God. Wow. We got to bring it back to Jesus, but we'll never be able to do that if we have not had a personal experience ourselves. If we don't have a story, if somebody never helped us and so it became about moral behavior and church attendance and trying our best, the best way for your children to have a faith of their own is to watch and to participate with you as you practice your own. This is why we take communion. This is why we give. This is why we show up. Because we were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're running free. We're forgiven. We're accepted. We're redeemed. It's real. We can touch it. We can feel it. And it's real to us because we experienced it. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And you're going to have the opportunity to take communion again, like we do every week. Maybe today it takes on a different meaning for you in some way, I don't know. But as you come and you take that bread and you take that juice, you're not just going through the motions, but you're remembering, you're keeping it in front of your face. I needed a body to be broken, a sinless body to be broken. I needed sinless blood to be shed, and God sent Jesus. 
So I, now I get credit for his life because he took credit for mine. You take that bread and you take that juice. Maybe you want to take it as a family today. Maybe that's something you want to do. But we don't rush past the moment. We use it to remember. And this week's going to get busy and we're going to forget, but we come back next week. We, we are with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We worship. We worship together. We take the bread. We take the juice. We celebrate with those being baptized. We remember. And life gets crazy. We forget, but we come back. And we remember. And so I want to pray for us. And then we'll have an opportunity to take communion and pray together. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave our salvation up to our record of right and wrong effort, striving. But you sent Jesus Christ. And you let his body be broken and you let his blood be shed so that I could have a relationship with you. And God, I pray for every person in the room who has not had their own exodus. They do not have a story to tell. I pray that today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they would get out, they would, they would, they would be set free, that they would turn and, and start living for you. They would start that relationship with you because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for every one of us who have a tendency to forget. I pray that you would bring us back to your table and help us to remember you put skin on. It's real. We can touch it. We can feel it. Because you loved us and you were committed to us and you're faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.